The following message is brought to you by George Lawson, Jr., pastor and Bible teacher with Baltimore Bible Church. We'll be reading from the New American Standard Bible. For more information about this ministry, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. So let's now open our Bibles and follow along with Pastor George as we loose the Scriptures and let them speak. Well, why don't you take your Bibles and uh, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. Uh, 1 Peter is a book that addresses believers who are suffering uh, for their faith. And uh, today we reach uh, the conclusion of the main body of this letter in uh, chapter 5, uh, verses 10 through 11. Uh, after this, all that's left of 1 Peter are his final greetings, a final charge to stand firm, but that's it. Uh, this is the amen of 1 Peter. And as he closes this epistle, uh, the recipients might have hoped that Peter would have offered them a word of comfort. Like, you know, I've prayed for you that your faith would not be tested. Or that the God of all grace will himself deliver you from all suffering. They might have hoped that Peter would end his letter like that. But instead, he ends this letter with the guarantee of more suffering. In verse 10, he says, after you have suffered for a little while. And what does he mean after? What what he's saying is that there's still more suffering to endure. This is not the end of it. You're not done. And instead of the God of all grace keeping you from suffering, he promises to keep you through suffering. God will strengthen you for the suffering, but he's not delivering you from it. Suffering for the sake of of righteousness is like the the shadow that you can't get rid of. If I'm standing in the the sun, my, my shadow is coming with me. And if I'm standing in Jesus Christ, the S-O-N, the Son of God, the shadow of suffering won't be far behind. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted after you have suffered a while. may seem like a, a sour note to end this letter on, but what we find in these closing verses is extremely encouraging. Extremely encouraging. And it's my prayer that the Lord would use these words to build your faith and encourage your hearts just as he did mine. Uh, we'll start in 1 Peter chapter 5. I'll start at verse 5 just to set the context for us. 1 Peter chapter 5, starting at verse 5. It says, You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. Casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be a sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you by his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. And all God's people said, amen. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you, and Father, we are so grateful for your word. We're grateful for the way that you instruct us through the scriptures, that you teach us, that you do bring encouragement Oh, Father, that there is a measure of comfort that's brought to us through your word, not just now, Lord, but looking forward with the future hope. There's a guarantee of future blessings. And even as we sang today, when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. Oh, Father, we look forward to that. Oh, Father, we have that, that hope fixed in our minds. We're fixing our hope completely on the revelation of Jesus Christ. Uh, So, Father, we uh, pray that you would help us, Lord, as your people uh, who walk along this pilgrim pathway. Uh, Father, that you would help us to be humble, that we would be faithful, uh, that we would be expectant people. And, uh, Father, I pray that you would use me as a weak instrument to be a blessing to your people, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In the closing verses of 1 Peter, Peter rattles off a series of parting commands, one after the other. We've brought this up before. In verses 5 to 7, we're commanded to be humble. You younger men are told to subject yourselves. Be subject to your elders. 
All men are told to be humble, to humble themselves. Both of those are commands. In verse 8, we're commanded to be watchful, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Again, two commands. In verse 9, we're commanded to be faithful, but resist him firm in your faith. Again, that is a command. Satan will try to devour your faith, but you are to stand firm in it. Resist him. In verse 12, we're commanded to be immovable. You know, this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. All of those are imperatives. Be humble, be watchful, be faithful, be immovable. Watch, stand, resist. There's just this barrage of commands. And if you're going to do this, you're going to suffer. The devil is prowling, but you're to keep going. But right in the middle of all these commands, of what you're called to do, of what the devil is trying to do, we, we find what God has committed himself to do. And this is like the, the little oasis in the middle of all these commands. Right there in verse 10, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. This is what your God will do. And Peter makes this, this sweeping statement that takes us all the way from eternity past into eternity future. And all of these blessings are what God himself accomplishes. He who called you is the one who perfects, confirms, strengthens, and establishes you. This is what your God will do. He gives strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings all mine with ten thousands besides. Great is thy faithfulness, great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Amen. And God is faithful to provide all the grace that we need to stand. And in this brief section of, of Scripture, powerful section of Scripture, you know, we'll take it apart by looking at the questions that this text answers for us. Who is it that gives us strength? When does he give us this strength? What does it mean to give us strength? And lastly, what does this strength say about the giver? Number one, who is it that gives strength? Look again at First Peter Chapter 5 and verse 10, after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you by his eternal glory in Christ. Who is the one who gives us strength? It's the God of all grace. There are, there are many times that God is called gracious in the scriptures, but this is the only time that he's designated as the God of all grace. We're familiar with that term, right? You know, the Greek term charis, biblical word for gift, kindness, unmerited favor. Peter's already used this word back in chapter 1 and verse 10 for the salvation that we have as believers. As to this salvation, he says, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. This salvation is grace that's coming to you. Salvation that we haven't earned, it's not merited. It comes to us as a gift of grace. And if you're here today and you haven't given your life to Jesus Christ and you're trying to get to heaven based on your good works, or you think that those of us who are gathered together here today are just a, a bunch of people who are trying to get to heaven by our good works, you're not thinking about biblical Christianity. You, you can't do enough good works to get to heaven. Romans chapter 4 verse 5 says, but to the one who does not work, does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Salvation is guaranteed to us as a gift from God based on faith. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Gift. It's a, it's a free, unmerited gift that we receive from God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. The standard of, of righteousness to enter into God's perfect kingdom is too high for any of us to match. Because the standard is perfection, and we've all fallen short. And if you can't say amen, you should say ouch, right? <laughs> all of us, we've fallen short. Fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So the only way that we can be presented before this God is righteous is that it would have to be given to us, granted to us. Somebody else had to do the work that we couldn't do and Jesus is that gift. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, it says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Where do we get our righteousness? It's from Jesus Christ. 
He's the one who lived the righteous life that we could not live, died the death that we deserved on the cross, bore the penalty for our sins upon his shoulders, and he offers grace. He offers salvation to all those who would repent of their sins and turn to him. That's grace. That's a gift. And Peter uses that word grace for this gift of of salvation. He also uses it for the future hope that we have. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Speaks about this future glory or honor or joy that will come to believers at the time that Jesus Christ shows up. He's described as, uh, it's described as this joy inexpressible and full of glory. It's a joy with exaltation. That's the, the grace, the gift from God that Jesus Christ will return. And what Peter is saying is that the same God who brought you salvation and the same God who will bring the revelation of Jesus Christ is the same God who is presently sustaining you through your suffering. The God of all grace. Second Corinthians chapter 12, if you want to flip over there real quick. We learn about this present grace of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul said that uh, he was given a, a thorn in the flesh, which he described as a, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Why does he call it a, a messenger of Satan? If you actually uh, take that phrase, messenger of, of Satan, literally, as uh, MacArthur does, it could be a reference to a satanic messenger or a false teacher who attacked and criticized Paul and his ministry. And that's actually what Paul has been dealing with in this context in 2 Corinthians. He's been dealing with these, these vicious attacks against his ministry. Actually, just, just real quick, flip back to, to chapter 11. Look at chapter 11. Look at verse uh, 13. Actually, I'll start at verse 12. He says, but what I am doing, I will continue to do so that I may cut off opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the matter about which they are boasting. These are men who who want to be called apostles, but they're not. For such men are false apostles, he says in verse 13. Deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. Look at verse 14. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. That uh, those two words, Satan and angel, messengers, is the same word that shows up in 2 Corinthians where he says that there was a messenger of Satan who was buffeting me, came to torment me. It might be that he's talking about one of these false apostles or the group of false apostles is the thorn in his flesh. Those who, who are tormenting me. And he asked the Lord, for these to be removed, for the thorn to be removed. But what does the Lord say? Second Corinthians chapter 12, look at verse 9. And he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will boast about my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses. And it might be the weaknesses that they were Uh, trying to to insult him about, and that's the very next word, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. That's when I'm strong, when I'm weak. And what's that grace that sustains me when I'm weak, when I'm being insulted, when I'm being maligned, when I'm being accused? What is that grace that sustains me? It's the grace of God. The grace of God sustains me when I am weak. God sustains me. We would much prefer God's grace to take us out of suffering, but God's grace is demonstrated through suffering, and it's better to know the Lord's grace than to know relief. I don't know if you heard me. <laughs> it's better to know the Lord's grace than to know relief. That's, that's tough, but it's true. It was, it was uh, Charles Spurgeon who said, I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. <laughs> I've learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. If the, if the wave that's crashing against me throws me against Christ, I'll learn to embrace that wave. <laughs> Whatever slams me against Christ, draws me closer to Christ, I will embrace that. I've learned to kiss that wave. And we also need to keep in mind that, that this is the God of all grace who has placed us in the difficulties that we find ourselves in. He's the God of all grace. 
And that doesn't mean that it's not painful when we experience suffering, but it does change our perspective when we know that it comes from a God of all grace. He doesn't design the fire to consume us, but to strengthen us, right? When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee. I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. I'm going to quote a lot of hymns today. I'm quoting a lot of them. Don't worry about it. I'll just keep going. When we go through these fiery trials, what are they for? It's not to, to consume us. It's to strengthen us through it. And it's the God of all grace who strengthens us. But not only is the, the God of all grace, look back at 1 Peter chapter 5 again. He's also the God who called you. He's the God of all grace and he's the one who, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ. And this is where, where, like I said, Peter sweeps us from eternity past into eternity future. When scripture speaks about the calling of God, those who are called of God, it's a phrase that's loaded with theological meaning. In a, in a few cases, uh, those who are called of God, uh, it's uh, referring to those who are selected for a specific kind of ministry. You know, like Paul was called as an apostle of Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians 1 and 1. In uh, Acts chapter 13 and verse 2, you had the Holy Spirit who said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul to the work to which I've called them. So again, it's this calling of God. But the vast majority of the times when you see that word calling or called of God, it's a reference to the special act of God by which he effectually draws sinners in faith to Jesus Christ by his word and by his spirit. It's the effectual call. The, the Westminster Confession of Faith puts it this way, all those whom God has predestined unto life and those only, he is pleased in his appointed and accepted time effectually to call. He's pleased to call them effectually. It's a, it's a call that takes an effect by his word and spirit out of that state of sin and death in which they are by nature to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ. And it goes on to say, this effectual call is of God's free and special grace alone, not from anything at all foreseen in man who is altogether passive until being quickened, awakened, made alive, and renewed by the Holy Spirit. He is enabled to answer this call to embrace the grace offered and conveyed in it. What is that saying? It's saying that uh, God has to do the work. <laughs> God has to do the work. If you're going to come to salvation, it's God who has to do something in you to call you effectually to make an effect in your heart in order for you to respond to him. Those whom God has predestined to salvation before the world began in eternity past, he calls in time to salvation and he makes that call effectual. It's going to take an effect. I'm going to call and something's going to happen. He calls, they come. Like when Jesus uh, says to Lazarus, come forth. It's the call that makes him come. <laughs> Lazarus had no ability to come before the call. It's the call that gave him the ability to come. And that's the, the effectual call that's discussed in Scripture. Uh, just real quick, over in uh, Romans chapter 8, if you want to flip over there. This is what uh, Romans chapter 8 is talking about. And this is what many refer to this uh, unbroken chain of salvation. You know, these golden links, this unbroken chain of salvation. From beginning to end, it's all of God. Take a look at... Uh, Romans chapter 8, and we'll start at verse 30. Romans chapter 8. Uh, I'm going back. Don't worry. 28. We'll start at 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And listen to this, and these whom he predestined, predetermined, he also called, this effectual call, and these whom he called, he also justified. So those that are called are also those who are justified. They, they, they place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and are given righteousness as a gift. That's what justification is talking about, to be declared righteous in the sight of God. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. It's an unbroken link. You're predestined, you're called, you're justified, you're glorified. And God is the one who's working in all of these steps of your salvation, an unbroken chain. 
First Corinthians chapter one, verse nine says, God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ. First Peter two, verse nine says, you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Second Timothy one, nine speaks about those who are saved. God has saved us, called us with the holy calling. And Hebrews chapter nine and verse 15 says, those who have been called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Those who are called. It's even used as a description of those who are saved. Those who are saved are just called the called. You know, the called. It's, the, it's the, those who are called by God. And how were you called? You were called to salvation through the preaching of the gospel. Through the preaching of the gospel. As the word of the gospel is being preached, God sovereignly uses that word to draw people to himself. I love how uh, uh, Robert Raymond put it in his systematic theology. He says, as the sinner listens to the voice of the preacher, something happens. Mysteriously, imperceptively, he no longer hears simply the voice of the preacher. Instead, what he now hears is also the voice of God, summoning him into fellowship with his son, and he responds to Christ in faith. Or as Jesus put it, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. A lot of people heard what Jesus said, but they didn't really hear what Jesus had to say, right? They, they heard it, but they didn't hear it. You know, some of you remember the, uh, you know, uh, Charlie Brown's teacher in that, the Peanuts cartoon. I've brought this up before. You know, so they're, they're talking to the teacher, and what does the teacher say? Wah, 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 wah. And, and all of them are responding, yes, ma'am, yes, ma'am. It's like, what are they? I remember being a kid, it's like, what, what are they hearing? <laughs> they're hearing something different than what I'm hearing. Wah, 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 wah. And that's exactly how it is often when people preach the gospel. It's like they, people hear the words, but it's not connecting. It's not making sense. Why, why would I do that? What does the Bible say? That the, the word of the cross is what? Foolishness. You know, that's, that's what it sounds like. Wah, 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 wah. That's foolishness. That doesn't make any sense. But until the Lord says, you know what? I'm going to effectually call you now. I, I'm, I'm going to, to intervene here. And you're going to hear what's being said. And all of a sudden, it's like, I don't think I've ever heard that message before in my life. It's like, who knows how many times you might have heard it. But God chose to say, you know what? I'm going to use this moment to call you to myself. And God does that work. God has to grant ears to hear. The word that produces life in those who are being saved is the word of the gospel. And God uses that word through his spirit to draw people to himself. And that's by grace. He's the God of all grace. He's the source of all goodness, all kindness, all undeserved. I didn't deserve to, to, to hear and respond to the gospel message, but that's something that the Lord did. And I need to, to keep in mind that it's the Lord who called me. My ears were opened by the Lord. He's the one who predestined me. He's the one who adopted me as his son. And it's by Jesus Christ that I'm called into this glory not through works of righteousness, but because of the call of God. And this is the God. This God who, who calls me. This God who, who promises me eternal glory in Christ, the, the glories and the riches of heaven. It's this God who also strengthens me during suffering. It's that God. The God who, who gave you salvation that you didn't deserve. It's that God who's also calling you to go through suffering. It's the God of all grace. And we can receive suffering from the hands of a God who says, I'm, I'm a God of all grace. I've, I've granted you salvation that you didn't deserve. I've granted you eternity that you don't deserve. I'm sustaining you right now through your suffering, which you don't deserve. As we look at that, we, we don't have anything to, to complain about while we're in it. It's the God of all grace who gives us these trials, these difficulties, and he also gives us the strength. When does he give us that strength? When does he give us that strength? It's after you've suffered a while. What does that mean? It means that, uh, that God will break you down before he builds you up. <laughs> it means that the God will let you feel your weakness before you bear his strength. It means that the God will sift you like wheat before he strengthens you to strengthen your brothers. And that's a common theme throughout scripture, right? Abraham had to be separated from his family before he lifted his eyes to the starry host of heaven. He had to go through years of barrenness before he saw the child of promise. Joseph was thrown into the pit, into the prison, before he was ready for the palace. Moses was cast out into the wilderness for 40 years before he was ready to lead God's people to the promised land. 
Job had to have the hedge of protection torn down from around him before he could say, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Gideon had to see the army of thousands cut down to 300 before he was ready to win the battle against Midian. David was chased like a wild animal before Saul before he was ready for the crown. Peter in Luke 22 was sifted like wheat before he would strengthen his brothers. And even our Lord Jesus Christ, the supreme example, the example par excellence, he went to the cross before he ascended back into heaven. Hebrews chapter 10 and uh, chapter 2 and verse 10 says, It was fitting for him, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. And here in 1 Peter chapter 5, it says that perfecting work happens after the period of suffering. And there's a few observations that we can make about this duration, the duration of our suffering. The suffering we endure as believers is temporary. There's an after the suffering. After you have suffered, what does that say? There's a time when it comes to an end, right? After the suffering, he will strengthen you. There's coming a time when, when, when God will wipe every tear from our eyes. There will no longer be any suffering or death. Suffering will be barred out of heaven. There's coming an afterwards. That, that time might come now and that time might come later, but there is coming an afterwards. It's, it's not always. Suffering that we endure is also short compared to the eternal glory we have in Christ. And Peter doesn't minimize our sufferings. He says, after you've suffered for a little while, when he says little while, uh, that's in comparison to eternity. Because a lot of us may be going through suffering and it's, it's, it's a long trial. Some of you have been going through suffering for years. Peter's not minimizing that here. You know, if, if, you, if you're 50 years old and you've been suffering for 25 years, that's half your life, right? That, that doesn't seem like a little while. That's, that's the majority of my life. But now if uh, you compare that to 500 years in glory, 25 years starts to shrink, doesn't it? <laughs> you compare that to uh, 500,000 years in glory. You know, it's, it's, you can hardly see it. Compared to 500 million years in glory. What, what suffering? What are you talking about? It's, it's a little while. Compared to the eternal weight of glory, all suffering is momentary and light. 2 Corinthians 4.17 says, Momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory. And another observation we can make is that believers are sustained through suffering. Why is there an after you have suffered, you will be strengthened? Because, because through the trial, the Lord has sustained you. That, that he's kept you so that you do make it to that afterwards. He, he's keeping you through the trial. God will strengthen you before he strengthens you. <laughs> God will strengthen you, sustain you before you, you, you feel the, the full measure of that strength. Philippians 4.13 says, I can do all things through him who does what? Strengthens me. And actually in the context, that's talking about through trials and difficulty. I, I can do all things. People use that as like, you know, I can come out victorious and on top every, you know, every situation I find myself in. You know, uh, uh, Evander Holyfield used to wear it on the back of his jersey. I can do all things. Through Christ who strengthens me. You know, uh, Steph Curry puts it on his shoes. I can do all things. What is he talking about? I can score that shot. I can score the winning shot because I can do that through him who strengthens me. That's not what Paul is talking about. <laughs> he, he's talking about I can, I can go hungry. And I can do that through Christ who strengthens me. I, I can be abased. I can be brought low. And I can do that through Christ who strengthens me. You know, if, if I lose the championship, I can do that through Christ who strengthens me. That's the context of that verse. I can do all things. Anything that you throw at me, I can handle that. Because I know that it's Christ who is sustaining me. God is strengthening us. And that's a result of his sustaining grace. That he keeps us. He keeps us. I recently saw a pastor that... Jennifer and I sat under 27, 28 years ago. And um, he said, Brother George, it's good to see that you're still standing. And I knew what he meant by that. Because there were a lot of people who came through the church at the same time that we did. And they're nowhere to be found. Nowhere to be found. He says, I'm, I'm glad that you're, you're still standing. And, and, and who do we give the credit for standing? It's, it's the Lord who sustains us. The Lord who holds us. And actually, the, the, older, the older I get is the, the more I, I recognize how precious a gift faith is. <laughs> yes. 
that the, the faith that's been granted to us as believers is not a temporary faith. And when you look around and you start to see people dropping off, people that you thought loved the Lord, knew the Lord, they were serving the Lord, they were being faithful, you know, the, the same people, you know, running around the church and everything else, and then they run right out the church. <laughs> and it's like, what happened? What, what, what happened? They, they didn't have a, a faith that sustains. Psalm 37, verse 23 says, The steps of a man are established by the Lord, and he delights in his way. When he falls, he will not be hurled headlong, because the Lord is the one who holds his hand. <laughs> Psalm 73, in the context of personal suffering while Asaph is watching the, the wicked prosper, he says, As for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My, my steps had almost slipped. And what he meant by that is I, I almost denied the Lord. I almost said, God's not good. It doesn't make sense to follow God. Why am I doing this for? Am I doing all this for nothing? Verse 23, he says, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. Why, why, why are we sustained? It's because God is holding on to us. That's why we're sustained. God is holding on to us. It's the Lord who sustains us and causes us to stand. And what does it mean for God to give us this strength? Back to 1 Peter 5 and 10 again. What does it mean for God to give us this strength? After you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Four terms that Peter uses here to talk about the stability of faith. And that's what I believe Peter is getting at in this context, the stability of our, our faith. In verse 9, he says, resist him firm in your faith. He, the, the, the word for firm there is steros, and it's actually related to a word that he uses in verse 10 where he says that you will be confirmed. It's, it's from a, a similar root there, similar root word. In other words, we're commanded to stand firm, and God says, and I will confirm you. I will, I will make sure that you stand firm. You're commanded to do it, and I will make sure that you're going to do it. In other words, we're commanded to do what only the Lord can enable us to do. Because it's God who is at work in us, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Philippians 2, 13. So the command to stand firm and the promise that he makes to stand firm agree. It's, a, it's, it's in agreement, the command and the promise. So let's take a look at what God will do. He will perfect you. That's a Greek word, katar, tidzo. It's a word that means to mend, to restore, to prepare. It's the same word that was used in Matthew chapter 4, verse 21, when Jesus found James and John, and they were mending their nets, mending the nets. They're, they're putting it back together. They're restoring their nets, making it useful again. They're preparing them for the next trip, filling in the gaps, completing what was lacking. It was also used for uh, resetting bones, mending bones, putting bones back together getting a ship ready after it had been worn by a storm that you, you mend the ship, put it back to good use. Same word used in Galatians 6 for uh, those who are caught in a trespass to restore such a one. Put that person back together again. 1 Thessalonians 3 verse 10. As night and day we kept praying most earnestly that we may see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith. I'm, I'm coming to restore you, to put you back together again. And this is what God will do for us. When, when our, our faith feels fractured, when we're under stress, when we're, when, we're, when we're pulling apart at the seams, God, I don't know how much longer I can take this. I'm, I'm in this difficulty, and I'm being torn. I'm, I'm suffering. It's, it's tearing me apart. And when you feel like you're falling apart, God says, I'll put you back together. I'll put you back together again. Peter knew what it looked like to fall apart. After he uh, denied that he even knew the Lord three times, and then he heard the cock crow, right? Went out and wept bitterly. Bitterly wept. But what, what did the Lord do? The, the Lord came back and restored him. Like, Peter, I'm, I'm not going to let you stay out there. Do you love me, Peter? I'm, I'm going to put you back into service. Feed my sheep. The Lord restored Peter. How do we know that Peter's faith was the real thing? Because he was restored. He wasn't eventually lost. The Lord brought him back. That is, that is a gift of God. God will do this. God will mend you. The, the faith that we have, even though it might be fragile, even though it might be ripping apart, God says, if it's the real thing, I'm putting that back together again. I will restore you. That's what God does. He will also confirm you. 
It's a word that was used for construction. Literally, it meant to, to set something up so that it's immovable. The word means to establish something, to, to fix something. It was the word used in uh, Luke chapter 16 uh, for the great chasm between heaven and hell, and it was fixed. There's a boundary, and it's fixed. You, you can't get from one to the other. The same word was used figuratively for somebody who was determined, resolved. It was used for Jesus Christ, who was resolved, determined to go to Jerusalem, Luke 9 and 51. Speaking about the Messiah, Isaiah writes, the Lord God, in verse Five, the Lord God has opened my ear and I was not disobedient, nor did I turn back. Think about what Jesus did. I gave my back to those who strike me, my cheeks to those who pluck out my beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. For the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I, I am not disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint and I know that I will not be ashamed. Jesus Christ was determined. I'm going to go through the crucifixion, I'm going to go through the suffering, and I'm not even going to turn my face away. Determined to go through the suffering. And this is the way that the Lord fixes us, that he gives us a resolve. Peter, Peter understood that too. <laughs> understood what it meant to, uh, to be propped up by the Spirit of God, to stand up on the day of Pentecost, to all those who were ridiculing him and said, these men are not drunk like you suppose. And he called all of them to repentance and said, Jesus is the one that you crucified. Resolute, firm, fixed. I'm not backing down. Peter knew what it was like to be propped up by the Spirit of God. And who did that? The Lord did that. That's, that's not because of, because of him. It's because of the Lord. The Lord gave him strength. That is what the Lord does. The Lord gives strength. Number three, he also strengthens us. It's a general word used for for strength, outside of the New Testament, it was used for doing something with all of your might, all of your energy. This is the only time it shows up in the, in the scriptures. But it's a powerful reminder that the strength that we operate in does not belong to us. It's the strength of his might. And this actually spoke of an internal strength, an internal fortitude. You know, it's not just that I, I won't topple over because, you know, I've been fixed and I won't fall. But I, I've, I'm, I have like this constitution within myself that God has granted me strength to stand. It's an internal strength. Colossians 1.11 says that we're strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. In Ephesians 1 and 19, it says, what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe we have an internal strength so that we don't crumble? We won't be moved and we won't crumble. And lastly, the, the final word is establish. It's a word that literally means to lay a foundation. In Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 10, you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth. Jesus used it for the firm foundation uh, of those who hear his word and act on it. Matthew chapter 7, those who hear my word and act on it, build their house upon the rock. It's settled, it's firm, it's fixed. It's not going anywhere. It's on solid ground. And it's the Lord who gives us a firm footing when you feel like the bottom's going out from underneath you. I heard a, a story uh, which was presented as a true story about a, a man who was working on a construction site late at night. It's, you know, one of these buildings that they're just kind of putting together and he's walking on a beam. And uh, while he's walking on this beam in the night, he slipped. And as he slipped, he was able to, to grab on to the beam that he was walking on and he's crying out, screaming out, but he's the only person on the site. He's screaming out. And as his fingers start to slip and give way, he lets out this last scream and he falls three inches to the floor that was underneath him. <laughs> there, there's a firm footing, a firm foundation underneath us. When you feel like you can't hold on, the Lord won't allow your soul to be lost. When you feel like I'm at the end of my strength, the bottom's coming out. I don't have anything underneath me. It's the Lord that settles you. You've got a foundation You've got a foundation. Stick with and be firm with your faith. And you won't be able to do any of that if the Lord isn't holding you. You won't be able to, to stand firm if the Lord is not holding you firm. And if the Lord is not holding you firm, you won't have a desire to hold firm. Because <laughs> it's the Lord who has to work in you both to will and to work. It, he gives you the desire to even stand firm. But we have a lot of people today who are encouraging Christians to work against what the Lord is doing. Clearly, the Lord is concerned with constructing your faith, making your faith firm, making it solid, 
That's what the, the word confirm implies. The word confirm was used for construction. You know, that, that I'm building, I'm, I'm firming up, making sure. Literally used to, to make something immovable, establish it. God is about constructing your faith. But the buzzword in Christianity today is all about deconstructing your faith. God's command is to stand firm. And the world's push is to loosen up. Why are you so sure about that? You shouldn't be so certain about that. You need to, you need to question more. And while meaning Christians are getting sucked into this kind of thinking, we need to question everything. But that's the opposite of what God calls us to do. Now, now we are commanded to search the scriptures to make sure that these things are so, right? You know, that, that's, that's faith-seeking assurance. When uh, Paul preached to those who were in Berea, he considered them more noble because they received the word with great eagerness. I, I, I believe this, but I, I want to go back and check, make sure that um, I'm finding it in the scriptures. So it's faith seeking assurance. That's a good place to be. Acts chapter 17 speaks about those of Berea. If you're working from a position of doubt, but you're seeking assurance, that's also noble. John the Baptist was brought to doubt, but he brought his doubts back to Jesus. <laughs> it was doubt seeking assurance. And listen to what, what happens here in uh, Matthew chapter 11. Listen to what uh, John the Baptist brought to Jesus. He said to him, he brought the, the disciples, sent the disciples to him, and he said to him, are you the expected one or shall we look for someone else? You know what that is? That's incredible faith. Because John is still saying, I'm expecting someone to come. Are you the expected one or are we looking for somebody else? He still had faith. There's somebody that I'm expecting. I'm just making sure it's you. So it's this doubt that's seeking assurance. I'm not sure right now because I'm in jail. I'm in prison. I'm suffering. And uh, the suffering got to him. And now he's like, I'm, I'm not sure because I, I thought the Messiah was supposed to release us from our captives. Are you the one? Are we looking for somebody else? But it was doubt seeking assurance. But if you're working from a position of doubt and you're questioning the very foundation you're standing on, what's left to hold you up? <laughs> if you're questioning the very foundation you're resting on, you're questioning the, the, the scriptures, you're questioning God, you're questioning his word, where else do you go? Once you say, I'm questioning everything, I, I'm, I'm going to start from scratch, pretend that God doesn't exist, pretend that, that the Bible is not true, I'm going to start from scratch, now where do you start? You're done. You're done. And that's what we have a lot of people. I want to deconstruct everything, like remove all the foundations, and then let's start from scratch. But once you abandon the scriptures and you abandon God, where else do you go? John chapter 6, verse 68. Simon said to him, Lord, to whom shall we go? <laughs> you have the words of eternal life. And we've recently had a number of people deconstructing their faith, and they end up just walking away from it. In a cripple gate post, Jordan Standridge wrote, when anyone walks away from the Lord Jesus Christ, it's a devastating thing. When a respected leader who wrote books, pastored a large church, and who led many people to Christ does it, it can be all the more devastating. But when it is a respected leader whom God used not only to help someone grow spiritually, but who led them to Christ, it can prove to be earth-shattering. And listen to what he says. One of my closest friends in the world was in a bathroom in Seoul, South Korea, crying his eyes out as he was reading Dug Down Deep by Joshua Harris. Right then and there, he asked the Lord to save him, to give him a new heart. He was saved a few years ago, and then he reads this post from the man who God used to save him. This is what Josh wrote. I have undergone a massive shift in regard to my faith in Jesus. The popular phrase for this is deconstruction. The biblical phrase is falling away. By all the measurements that I have for defining a Christian, I am not a Christian. Many people tell me that there is a different way to practice faith, and I want to remain open to this, but I'm not there now. This man that was used to bring somebody to faith in Jesus Christ now turned away from faith in Jesus Christ. And that's, that's just one of many names I could give you. That's just one of many. This isn't isolated. It's not isolated. How are we to understand something like this? First John 2.19 is clear. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. But what happens in situations like this when people walk away? 
Instead of faith-seeking assurance or doubt-seeking assurance, this is doubt-seeking darkness. Because this is exactly what the Scripture says. John chapter 3. This is judgment that light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than the light. Why do you, why do you turn away from the light? Because you love the dark. 1 Timothy 1.19, keeping faith in a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. They don't want to keep a good conscience, so they turn away from the faith. 2 Peter 2, verse 20. It says, for if they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome. The last state has become worse than the first. People who make a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. And then they turn away from it. It says the last state is worse than the first. It's, it's more difficult to bring that person to the place of repentance. Why? Because they feel like I already know it all. I've already been there, done that. I've studied it all. There's nothing else that you can share with me. And that's the, the person that's, that walks away from the faith. And you may say, well, well hold on. I, I thought that God was holding me together. Like, like what, 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 what about these people who are not remaining firm. I won't go through all of it, but if you remember in Acts chapter 27, Paul was on his way to Rome, and there was a great storm that occurred. And after this great storm occurred, Paul actually told them that uh, uh, they shouldn't leave from from Crete where they were, but they did anyway. And uh, he says, but the Lord came to me, and he says that the life of everybody on this boat is going to be saved. And I believe it. That's what he says. The Lord says this and has granted everybody on this boat, and I believe it. And then a little bit later, it's 14 days, they're still out on the the ship. And a couple men decided that uh, they were close enough to the land, and they wanted to to get the boats that were on the side of the ship and try to get to shore, wanted to row to shore by themselves. And Peter says, unless, uh, Paul says, unless these men stay in the boat, uh, we'll, we'll perish. So what was going on there? The Lord made a promise, everybody's going to be saved. But then Paul still gave a command that, no, these guys have to stay on here to be saved. What, what's, what's going on there? It's the command that the Lord gave was the means to fulfilling the promise. The command that the Lord gives us to stand firm in the faith is the means that God uses to keep us firm in the faith. The, the command works together with the promise. So those who are true believers, what do we obey? The command. And the command is the means that God uses to help us to obey the promise. There's a promise that they would all survive, but they were also commanded to stay on the boat. In the same way that there's a promise for those of us who are believers that will survive, but the command is to stay in Jesus. Stand firm in your faith. And finally, what does the Lord strengthening us say about the Lord? And this is where we'll stop, verse 11. It says to him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. If, if the Lord is the one who's strengthening us, it says that the Lord is the one to whom belongs the strength. To him, the strength to the ages, literally is what it says in the Greek. This is the word of glory. Glory to God. Glory to the God of strength. Later manuscripts added the word uh, glory as well to fill out this praise to God. To him be strength and to him be Glory. But this is saying that glory and strength belong to God. Glory belongs to God because of his, his strength. And it's just a recognition that there's nothing that's powerful enough to snatch us from the hand of God. Once you're in the hand of God, once you belong to him, once you're found in Jesus Christ, there is nothing that anybody can do to snatch you away from the hand of God. In John chapter 10, verse 28, it says, I give them eternal life and they will never... That's actually a double negative. Never, never. No, no. They will never, ever perish. No one will snatch them from my hand. You're safe in the hands of Christ. And in verse 29, my Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. John chapter 6, verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me, I will certainly not, and it's again, a double negative, never, never, the one who comes to me, I will never, never cast out. Then uh, just one more text. Flip over to Romans chapter 8, and we'll close with this one. Romans chapter 8. Take a look at verse 31. 
Praise God for his sustaining grace. Amen. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God elect? God's elect? God is the one who justifies. <laughs> who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who is also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? It's just like kind of looking around. It's like, is there anybody? <laughs> you know, God is the one who's doing this. Is there anybody that's going to stop him? <laughs> anybody going to condemn when God is the one who's justifying? Who, who is the one who condemns? Who will separate us, verse 35, from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered a sheep to be slaughtered, but in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us for I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And all God's people said, amen. Praise God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for this promise, the wonderful promise that we find here in First Peter. Father, that you are the God who sustains us by your grace. You're the God who called us into the salvation. You're the God of, of all grace, the grace to save, the, the grace to preserve, the grace to keep. Father, you're the one who's, who's perfecting us, confirming us, strengthening us, establishing us. And you don't do this by proxy, <laughs> You don't get a substitute to do this. You do this yourself. He himself, you yourself does this work. And because of this work, Father, to you alone belongs the glory. <laughs> to you belongs the dominion, the might, the power forever and ever. And Father, for, for all of eternity, we'll be those who will gather at the throne and, and praise the living God Praise Jesus Christ who sits on the throne, uh, the one who, who died for us, who rose for us, who, who intercedes for us. And to you, Father, the one who confirms us and perfects us, who strengthens us. Now, Father, we thank you for your sustaining of us. And Father, every day that we look around and we wake up and we still have faith, we have one person to thank. <laughs> now, Father, we give you glory because of the faith that you've granted to us. In Jesus' name we praise you and give you thanks. Amen. You have been listening to George Lawson, Jr. of Baltimore Bible Church. To hear other messages or to find out about upcoming events or where we meet for weekly church services, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. Baltimore Bible Church reserve all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available on our website and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating CDs and all digital files.